Well, Happy New Year, guys. It's, uh, it's good. It's good to be gathering in the new year. And I wonder how you are marking the passage of 2021 to 2022. Anybody have any New Year's resolutions? We can do an open mic New Year's resolutions to share. Hopefully people got to celebrate a little bit. You got to hopefully be with friends or family. But I know that for a lot of people, you didn't get to be with friends or family because of this most recent surge and the way in which it's thrown all our plans um, into the air. It's a funny thing dealing with time and the new year because the new year feels like it ought to be a time to mark away with the old and in with the new, and yet it's this kind of arbitrary day set to mark one more journey around the sun, and things are still the same. Nothing fundamentally has changed, but something has also changed. And then, of course, there's the way that the pandemic has utterly messed with our sense of time. I know that so many of us were going into Christmas thinking, this is going to be the Christmas that we get back. And then, of course, the surge and everything changing, and it's like, here we are again, and it messes with your sense of time. It flattens our sense of progressing from one thing to the next. It's a good Sunday to think about this passage that we just heard read from Natalie. Because in the Ephesians passage this morning, we've heard in the Apostle Paul, that early missionaries, uh, the early missionary who wrote this, this letter, we hear in his rolling poetic voices, one of the most lofty descriptions of the meaning of Jesus Christ to history and to our faith and to what's to come. And it's a good message for New Year's Sunday, I think, because it's a timeless message. It's shockingly relevant when you consider that these words were written nearly 2,000 years ago, probably around AD 60 or just uh, three decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning's passage from Ephesians is something close to a pure doctrine of the good news of Jesus Christ, a, a word of God through Paul that's as fresh today as it was the day it was written. Now, the, the passage we just heard read, for those who aren't familiar with it, it comes from a letter that was originally circulated to the early churches from Paul who had set up these churches. And it would have been kind of an open circular letter that his assistant would have carried throughout the, the town's <clears throat> in the region of Ephesus, which is on the southwestern Mediterranean coast of what's modern-day Turkey. It would have been read aloud in the congregation, and there's something sort of poetic about thinking about this letter journeying around Turkey and then traveling 2,000 years to be read aloud to us today. And that's the greeting of this open letter is what we've just heard, the, the welcome, the introduction, the first verses of this open letter. These 12 verses of this good news that encouraged brothers and sisters in the faith nearly 20 years, 20 centuries ago, and it's now come to us. So let's jump in. I encourage you to follow along in your, in your smartphone or uh, in the Bibles in front of you. It's Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 3 to 15. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul begins, and this is really the point of the whole passage. Blessed be the Lord... God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. In the original uh, language of the Bible, the following 12 verses are actually just one long sentence. It would be a train wreck of semicolons and commas to replicate it exactly in English. 
But it's important to know this sort of jumbly sentence structure because what it means is that everything Paul goes on to write in verses 3 to 14 is really just building on this opening core declaration, blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, we had heard another Bible passage that opened by blessing God, if you were around for that. Uh, when, when Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, got his voice back and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who's visited and redeemed his people. And, and there we saw that to bless God was to speak well of God. Well, in a similar fashion, Paul's, as Paul's laying it out here, what it means for us to bless God in this passage is to recognize who God is, what God has done, and to respond authentically to that. So think about uh, how newlywed's face lights up on seeing his spouse into the room. In the same way, our souls light up upon seeing God. This lighting up in response, our good reaction to encountering God, this is, this is blessing. This is what it means to bless God. And the rest of the passage then just goes on to answer unstated, implied questions about our blessing and praise of God. So first, why is God to be blessed? Because, Paul writes, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And doesn't this sort of neatly describe the inherent tension of following Jesus? We have blessings but we can't put our hands on them all the time. We have blessings because everyone who follows Jesus Christ has already been blessed by God in every way, not most ways, but in every way. And that blessing is Jesus himself because in Jesus, God has satisfied every spiritual need we could ever have. There's no life enhancement program that you need more than Jesus. There's no rack of self-help books that you need more than Jesus. God has satisfied every spiritual need we could ever have. He's given us a Lord, a Savior, a friend, and a teacher. And when you have Jesus, your life becomes literally unimaginable without Him. But these, are bless these blessings that we have already, we're also waiting for them because they're with Christ in heaven. They're in Christ in heaven. Now, some Churches, some preachers say that God wants to be Christians to be rich in the here and now, but that's a, that's a false gospel because the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, if you're thinking about following him, the good news, the reason to do it is not that if you follow Jesus, the present world is going to get a little shinier or a little better, a little bit more posh. The good news of Jesus, the reason to follow Jesus is that our world where pain and sorrow and capricious suffering lurk around every corner that our world is in fact being made new into the kingdom of heaven. And our hope is there in the heaven that God is making in and through Jesus. So this is why God is to be blessed, because God has blessed us. God has blessed us, and this is why we bless God. This is why Paul opens by blessing God. But why then have we been given this blessing? There's the real rub. Is it because we're good and deserving people? Is it because we've earned it? No, it's for no other reason than God's own good pleasure. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Let's sit with that for a second. This is what it means to call ourselves Christians, if you call yourself a Christian. This is what it means to do that. This is the magnitude of this faith. 
the conviction that God chose us in Christ before creation itself. I wonder if you can really, really bring yourself to believe that. It's a hard one. We're not here at church on a Sunday morning worshiping God because of good choices we've made in our lives. If you call yourself a Christian, it's not because you passed some test, like you were good enough or smart enough or polite enough or brave enough or strong enough. We're, we're not Christians if you're a Christian because in this faith we've discovered a community or a value system that's good for social justice or that helps us deal with our problems. And, and all those things are in fact true. The church is good for social justice. The church does help you deal with your problems. It, it, it is a good thing. But this isn't why we are Christians. We're Christians, what Paul's telling us here, because God Almighty chose us to belong to Jesus before life began, before the world ever was. How different is this sort of religion from the ways that our culture often imagines religion? People talk about spirituality. You go to, the, you go to Indigo and you look at the, the spirituality section. There's a hodgepodge of sort of various preferences that you might have for kind of engaging the transcendent. People talk about spirituality as if it were each individual's customized set of superstitions and beliefs, and we imagine that spirituality, like job choice or fashion sense, is about our personal preferences for what we find meaningful, but that's not what Scripture says. Our faith isn't some contingent reality. It's not one possible lifestyle alongside all the others. It comes from the goodwill of God. I can't say that I understand this perfectly, but I hope I understand it better than I, than I did, and there was, there was a time when I didn't get this at all. I, I was a first year of university, studied, I majored in religious studies, and I was taking a, a class on uh, the history, religion, and culture of India. And I had been raised outside of any faith background whatsoever, and uh, part of my academic search was my own search for meaning, and, and, and I thought this this looked interesting and in the history, religion, and culture of India. And so part of this was my own kind of searching in this way. And, and there was this, uh, the, 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 the professor was straight out of central casting. He, he, he was sort of a former hippie and he studied these, uh, these Indian uh, poets of divine love and um, people just hung upon his lectures and everybody loved him. He was a tremendously charismatic guy. And then it came out one day in, in the course of the lecture that he himself was, uh, was Catholic, that he was, not, he was not, in fact, a practitioner of these religious, uh, these religious traditions that he studied. And I went up to him afterwards because I was baffled by this. I thought, how can you be, because his mind, he was, had a brilliant mind, a brilliant analytical sense, and a, and a deep respect for these traditions that he studied. And I said, how could you study these things and not be a follower of them. And he said something that was just kind of in passing, you know, like a student talking to a teacher on the way out the door, but it's one of those conversations that I think I'll remember for the rest of my life. And he said, well, it wasn't really up to me. It wasn't really up to me. I didn't ask him to unpack it. I didn't ask him to, to get into it, to explain what he meant, but I, th I think what he meant is something akin to this the sense that we are chosen before we choose. We're chosen before we choose. It's not up to us. It's not up to us. 
And I don't know if you've chosen God yet. I don't know if you've made a choice to follow Jesus, but whether you have or you haven't yet, God has already chosen you. God has already chosen you in Jesus before you ever were. In other words, God chose you before you could do anything that would make you worth being chosen or not being chosen. Imagine waking up from sleep and you hear someone saying the sentence to you, I love you. That's what life is like, God loving us before we're even born. We're here this, this morning, whether in person or online, because God brought us here. Just as we've been blessed with Christ in heaven, so too we were chosen in God before the beginning. I wonder if you can let your soul hear these words. Not mine, Paul's. Does it begin to feel, can your soul feel the urgency and the impulse of the only possible response? If this is true, if you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, then blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been given the blessing of Jesus because God decided it. But what have we been chosen for? Paul continues, to be holy and blameless before him in love and destined for adoption to his children as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. To be holy and blameless before him in love and destined for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. So here's what this means. In Christ, you are a holy and blameless child of God. And that can sound like church talk. What's that mean, holy and blameless child? But consider the imperfection and blame that exists in all our normal relationships. We're just coming out of Christmas. I hope you got to see your families. Anybody have a perfect relationship with their families? I <laughs> mean... Mike's not picking up the, uh, that wasn't a laugh line, but uh, I'm, I'm glad it was that kind of Christmas. Anybody have, never have any harsh words with their families or anything that you would take back, anything that you wish you could repair? Even with those we love the most, we still guard ourselves. We put up our, our walls of self-protection. We establish healthy boundaries, right? This is part of being in modern families. We keep part of ourselves secret, but not with God. In Christ, we have no shame before God, and that's not because we have nothing to be ashamed of, but because, or because we can keep it hidden, like God doesn't see, but you are totally known, and you are totally loved. Every part of you, the parts that you don't even know about yourself, the parts that you don't like to admit about yourself, you're totally known totally seen, and totally loved. And this is because, as Christ, Paul writes in verse 7, we have redemption in His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. To modern ears, salvation by blood can sound barbaric and strange, but its meaning is simply this, that Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh, poured out His life for love of us, and when He did that, it broke the barrier of sin that stood between us and God. In Christ, you are perfectly known, perfectly pure, with a perfectly clean conscience. And this total truth plus total acceptance equals a total and perfect love. And this reality can, can feel far away on a daily basis, but the blessing is there. It's in heaven with Christ, and someday we will know it fully. And even today, you can know it in part. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so what then is the ultimate fruit of this blessing? That we receive the blessing of Christ, Paul writes, to the praise of the glory of God's grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The praise of the glory of his grace. Let's take these backwards, beginning with grace. It is, so we're to the praise of the glory of God's grace. It is grace that we've been chosen as blameless children of God in Christ. Grace, another word often heard in church, but you don't hear a lot about grace at your workplace. But what it means is this, it's a gift freely given. That God had no obligation to choose us in Christ. We did nothing to deserve it, and yet here we are. This divine love open to us. And this grace is glorious. It's a word you might use to describe a, a sunrise or a spray of wildflowers or a work of art or whatever, a magnificent building, a symphony. Glory is when something boggles our senses that overwhelms us to behold. So the glory of grace to see, to hear, to smell, to taste and touch God, taking on flesh, dying for us and rising to a life that awaits us. And when we behold this glory with the senses of faith, when we really know what God has done for us in Christ, well then what can we do but praise it? What are the responses left to us? If someone gives you a gift that's beyond imagining, what can you do except praise it? exult in it. We can't be nonchalant as if we'd be equally blessed if Jesus had never existed. We can't be self-congratulatory or politely satisfied as if the glory of God's grace is something we'd brought about ourselves or even deserved. We, we can't be reserved and, oh, thank you very much for that, that grace. We can't be wistful as though God could have given us a better gift than God's self. No, unless we close our eyes to what God has done, our only response to the glory of God's grace is praise proclaiming with our words and our deeds and our bodies and minds, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul tells us that we praise God's glory not only for what he has done in Christ, but also for what will be. God has made known to us the mystery of his will, Paul writes, that his plan for the fullness of time is to gather up all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. The fullness of time. I said at the outset that time feels funny right now. It feels like time isn't adding up to anything in some ways. It feels like it's one day after another, one season after another, maybe even one year after another, but this wonderfully pregnant phrase, the fullness of time, that we live in time and time will someday be filled and when time is complete according to God's good will and good purpose, then all things, all things, you and me and those who came before us and those who will come after, all things will be gathered together in Christ. So you can see the movement. We were chosen in Christ before the beginning. We have every blessing in Christ in heaven now. And we will share the destiny of all things be perfectly ordered in Christ. What has been, what is now, what will be. What's that all mean? Well, I mean, to some extent, it's got to be a mystery, right? I mean, who can say what the other side of death looks like? Who can say what the kingdom of heaven's going to be? We can't even predict the weather very well, least of all here in Toronto. I've seen it snowing in my front yard and sunny in my back. How can we truly wrap our heads around the idea that all things 
will someday be gathered together in Jesus Christ. And the fact is that our imaginations simply aren't big enough to contain Christ, because that's not how it works. We don't contain Him, He contains us. We don't choose Him, but He has chosen us. The blessings we receive, the future He holds, we simply don't know. But we don't need a perfect picture of what's to come in order to have some hope in it. We live in the meanwhile, the perpetual meanwhile. And we who, Paul writes, were the first to set our hope on Christ, the meaning might be better translated, who hoped in Christ before our hope was vindicated, we've been marked, Scripture says, with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, which is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of His glory. The English translation disguises the impact of the original Greek here, which explicitly uses the terminology of a transaction. First, the Holy Spirit is more than a pledge. It's akin to a down payment or earnest money, a portion given to the present, in the present as a guarantee of something you're going to get in the future. And second, the word translated as God's own people actually means nothing more than the possession, the property. So we're sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, which is a down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession, which is us. We are God's people to the praise of God's glory. The message is more blunt, but it's plain. The possession is the church, and we wait for the fullness of time when God will redeem us completely. And for now, we are possessed perfectly and truly, but not fully claimed. We don't know what the final day will look like, but in our fleeting glimpses of the Holy Spirit, in worship, in Christian fellowship, in the work of justice and love, in every other aspect of Christian life, we see fragments of the reality to come. I hope those fragments can sustain you this week. I hope those fragments, whatever fragments you see and behold, I hope those can sustain you somewhat as you mark the passage of a new year. Whether you're excited by the prospect of 2022, whether you're feeling resigned, whether you're feeling despairing, whether you're feeling joyful, whatever, whatever you might be feeling, the passage of one year to the next, pay attention to those fragments of the Holy Spirit and the fragments of grace that are going to break through where you can say, that's God, God's doing that. God's doing that. Because that's what's going to sustain you in this weird passage of time that we're in right now because it's going to call you out of the present whether it's a happy present or a frustrating present and call you back to this timelessness that we have heard from Paul this morning that this is what has been this is what is now this is what we are headed toward and when we see those fragments brothers and sisters we know that we are waiting on beauty, and that's what's in our future. So blessed, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.